Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Now our conversation today will focus in part on SI bond issuance and the current supply-demand dynamic, some notable green legislation out of Europe and its implications, highlights of the 2021 voter proxy season in context to ESG and more. So joining me on the line for the conversation today, I'm glad to welcome Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Alex Hirsch of BlackRock. Alex drives platform strategy and product innovation in the Americas for the BlackRock Sustainable Investing Team. So, Amantia, Alex, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast and looking forward to our conversation today. Great to join uh, you, Dan, and hi, Alex, as well. Hi, thanks for having me on today. Looking forward to having a conversation. Absolutely, and I know there's quite a few topics we want to get to during our time together today. So maybe, Amantia, we can begin with SI bond issuance. I know this was highlighted as one of the three focus topics within the most recent Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which I know you run lead on. Now, SI bond issuance, it is set for a record year here in 2021 with total issuance of almost $400 billion through the end of June. Is there still room, Amantia, for growth or should investors be worrying about supply bubble in the space? That's a it's a great question, Dan, and one that uh, that we are actively watching and considering. Um, so, true as you as you noted, the issuance of SI bonds, so so green social and sustainability bonds overall, um, has uh, been beating records, you know, quarter to quarter almost, and is very much set to to beat the, another record. We think by the end of this year. Um, currently, total issuance as of the end of June of 2021 was at uh, 393 billion, so just under 400 billion, and half of that number, nearly, was made up from issuance of green bonds specifically, with uh, social and sustainability being the two growing uh, um, and kind of more recent uh, categories. So, you know, uh, uh, one of the questions that comes up naturally is: Should we worry about the supply bubble? And our view at the moment is that uh, this increased supply is actually something positive for the market. Uh, we think that a larger number of issuers coming in has the potential of adding greater diversification and better liquidity. So overall, we don't see this as a, as a risk point. Um, I would also add that um, our view is that the market is really ripe for growth at the moment and is supported by a lot of increased investor interest around sustainability as well as it's supported by the global focus on policy as well as regulatory action um, coming from around the world, and in particular the EU most recently, that um, I think will, will create even more interest around green and social and sustainability as one of the key instruments that, that will become sort of a way to, to help implement or, or respond to some of this regulatory push that we're seeing. Uh, so overall, you know, the market we think is right for growth. However, uh, what, what we're also watching is the way that the market infrastructure is uh, coming along and is continuing to develop. Uh, green bonds have been around for longer than social and sustainability bonds, which really only started emerging in 2016, 2017. And so what we're seeing with green bonds is already slightly more mature infrastructure. Um, the International Capital Markets Association, that is the organization that produces the green bond principles, the set of voluntary principles that define uh, what are the criteria, you know, that, that an issuer should look at to, to sell 
uh, label as a green bond. They just published in June of this year uh, also their sixth iteration of the, the green bond principles guidance. So again, here we've seen how this, uh, this guidance has, has evolved and matured and become more sophisticated over time. And we expect similar developments to happen for social and sustainability bonds um, in months and, and years to come. So, you know, the market is, is growing when it comes to GSS bonds overall, but um, there's definitely some scope for improvement there when it comes to transparency and the ability of third-party uh, verifiers to, to verify the, the greenness for, uh, of, of these bonds that are being labeled as GSS. Uh, so so we're, that's very much a space to watch. But overall, we think lots of opportunities here. Well, Amantia, thank you for the clarity. So clearly some paths forward. Uh, you did mention an interesting word, Amantia, transparency. So maybe we can run with that a few more moments. I do want to bring Alex into the conversation. So Alex, transparency and disclosures, they have been an important topic for investors as ESG strategies do gain interest. So Alex, how does increased transparency and disclosures affect the SI bond space? Great, great question. You know, transparency and disclosures are a big focus for investors across the ESG space. You know, I mean, from a stewardship perspective, we've been focused on increased disclosure and transparency from the companies we're investing in, you know, supporting TCFD and SASB disclosures. Um, and it's also incredibly important as investors in green or sustainable or social bonds. Um, you know, Amantia, you mentioned we've seen um, increased issuance in the space, um, and we believe, you know, you're going to need more green issuance in order to fund the transition to net zero, um, and has found the market really rewards transparency and details in the use of proceeds for these bonds, but not all green and sustainable bonds are equal. You know, investors really need to dig under the hood to understand what exactly the proceeds fund uh, you know, as a result, internally, we've developed a proprietary shading framework to categorize how the use of funds for green bonds, for instance, align with meeting the Paris goals of limiting global warming to one and a half to two degrees, with dark green being the most aligned. Um, in the social space, our shading framework evaluates how issuers define and will target a specific need for a target population. Um, you know, in our shading framework, it gives us a good kind of proprietary taxonomy, um, which is a good institutional capability, but we also see it as a really good signaling mechanism to issuers. Um, you know, we're engaging with companies on their green bond issuance, how each issuance gets shaded in our methodology, and that really signals to issuers how they can improve their issuance by providing them thresholds to receive our dark green shading, for instance. Um, the shading also helps us push for best practices within the industry, which we hope will in turn create even more issuance of green bonds that are clearly aligned to achieving net zero. Um, in addition, we're really focused on transparency around impact reporting. Um, so it's not about creating a pretty report. It's about incentivizing quantitative reporting and high quality data. Uh, we're actually partnering with some entities to create a clear sustainable bond framework and to have a third-party track project outcomes to, um, you know, to avoid issues we've seen in double counting um, and verifying outcomes of energy generation and the amount of emissions avoided. Uh, you know, while issuance has really increased in this space, it's still a very small part of the global bond market, and we need more investment to meet net zero goals and meet um, SDGs and really hope a clear framework and increased quantitative and transparent reporting 
will allow for even more issuance and broader adoption of these types of bonds. Well, Alex, thank you for the color there. It sounds like there's a lot to track and something that we can keep an eye on. So the conversation will continue there, though. For today, I do want to pivot a bit, maybe talk about legislation developments a bit. I know, Amantia, within the sustainable investing perspectives, you do talk about, well, whether the EU is getting fit for 55. So I want to dive into this a bit. Now, the European Commission, it did announce its first set of actions following debates around the European Green Deal this past spring. So, Amantia, can you clarify for us, what is the EU fit for 55 legislation and what implications does it have for European businesses? Sure, of course, and So, um, I... I referred earlier to to how legislation and regulation, uh, in particular from Europe, is is one of the driving elements for green bonds and other opportunities in the sustainable investing space. And I was basically nodding to this EU cleverly titled uh, "Fit for 55" proposal, legislative proposal that came out um, a few weeks ago. So uh, the European Union, as I, as I believe we've discussed on this podcast before. Uh, back in April, along with other global kind of governments, uh, restated its own uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. So the EU-specific target that it committed to was to reduce uh, its emissions by 55% by 2030. So really, this legislative proposal um, is the EU's, uh, the European Commission's sort of answer uh, to, to how they'll they'll drive towards meeting that commitment just in, in the next nine years. Um, so some interesting things in the proposal, and I'll prefix this conversation uh, with saying it's still a proposal. And, and you know, as, as we know, uh, and as we've observed here in the U.S. as well, um, this is important and interesting signaling, but, but the, the detail is sort of in the implementation details uh, in the end. And a lot of this proposal will continue to be negotiated among the European Union member states uh, over the summer. Um, however, some of the interesting things in the proposal that we've noted is, uh, for example, the the EU um, is looking to to incentivize member states and and kind of draw expectations for European Union member states to to kind of engage in effort sharing and financing sharing to help drive forward renewable energy, you know, energy efficiency and, and making the transportation sector more uh, kind of uh, reduce its, its carbon footprint. Um, another interesting part to notice, to, to mention in the proposal is that even though they have a lot of uh, guidance around the environment specifically, they're also keen on making sure that any environmental wins will not come at the expense of social wins and social dynamics. And so what's in the proposal is a new climate, uh, social climate fund, uh, which aims to finance improved energy efficiency and kind of uh, finance the, uh, the increased uptake of, of uh, electric vehicles, for example, by vulnerable households to make sure that they are not left behind uh, as we're moving towards the energy transition. Another interesting a component of the Fit for 55 proposal is that it's taking a second look at the European trading scheme or the ETS, which is uh, which was created more than 15 years ago, um, and is really the the system that that allows for the trading of carbon credits in the European Union. Um, so the expectation with this proposal is that the ETS would be extended to cover additional sectors like shipping and buildings for example, which have seen uh, relatively little 
uh, emission reduction in recent years, according to data from the European Energy Agency. Um, another interesting part is that the transportation sector might become part of its own separate ETS, uh, which means, um, you know, different sort of quotas potentially for the transportation sector, different allowances for aviation in particular as a subset of transportation, um, and, you know, just moving towards the EU's ambitions to, to address um, just the, the goals of uh, fuel distribution and uh, energy transition in these sectors as well. So lots in there, but overall, uh, we think that a lot of these uh, incentives and rules may be positive for uh, companies that are aligned to the green tech set of themes, so around renewables or smart mobility specifically, as well as other uh, subsectors that are, uh, you know, related and conducive to, to green technology overall. Um, I mentioned green bonds earlier. This is really the connection. We think that in particular, some of the expectations around member states um, participating into into these these efforts of financing may be may result in additional uh, support for green bonds and additional potential issuance um, as a way to help finance the transition to this low carbon economy that the European Union, just like many other governments around the world. Um, has committed to. Okay, so there's clearly a lot at play here, Abantia. There was a lot there to unpack and uh, quite a few implications to European businesses. So thank you for the walkthrough there. I think it's important maybe to tie this all into opportunities available for investors. So Alex, maybe you could shed some light on this. How does regulation like this proposal impact opportunities available for investors? Yeah, I mean, after over the past year and even the past couple of years, we've seen more and more governments committing to net zero emissions and passing policies and proposing regulation that seeks to limit emissions and combat climate change um, like this one. Um, you know, the societal shift has really dramatic implications for the global economy and for financial markets. Uh, you know, the big picture is that investors should no longer view the transition to a low carbon economy as a distant event. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening here. Um, you know, climate risk is investment risk, and the narrowing window for governments to reach net zero goals means that investors need to start adapting their portfolios today. You know, we see two key, um, two key aspects in the climate transition, technology and policy. The tech transition has already become in some key sectors like utilities and autos. And as the window to achieve net zero by mid-century narrows, we expect policy levers to be pulled harder. And this could result in a steeper transition. Uh, so as a result, we really believe that not incorporating climate into portfolios is no longer an option. You know, accelerated actions to reach net zero would really drive transition risk to be more rapidly priced in by financial markets. And so the risks associated with the net zero transition, like Amantia mentioned, include changes in regulations and taxes and technologies. And in the near and immediate term, we're also likely to see accelerating physical risks. And as a result, we really see climate implications on portfolios accelerating from here. Our climate-aware capital markets assumptions assume a successful transition to a low-carbon economy consistent with Paris Agreement's goals, which would deliver an improved outlook for growth and risk assets relative to doing nothing. And see, you know, climate resilient sectors such as technology and healthcare really benefiting the most from a green transition with carbon intensive sectors such as energy and utilities likely lagging. 
However, there are opportunities to invest in these carbon-intensive sectors to help them transition and fund companies and technologies that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the real economy. You know, the bottom line is we're still in the early stages of what we call a tectonic shift towards sustainable investing. And the full consequences of this shift are not yet priced into the capital markets. And so this is a big reason for investors to keep tabs on the progress of climate change and that of the climate transition. We believe that sustainability and climate integrated portfolios can really deliver better returns for investors over the long term. And that's why BlackRock, as well as other asset managers like yourselves as fiduciaries, are really committed to helping clients navigate this transition. Uh, We're using a lot of data and analytics to help investors better understand the impacts of these factors on their portfolios and introducing new products to help them capitalize on opportunities in the transition. Uh, We're also engaging with these companies to ensure that they're adapting to this new reality and addressing these key issues. We believe markets are really underappreciating the profound changes coming. Um, the path is unlikely to be a smooth one, which certainly presents risk to investors, but also see the climate transition as a historic investment opportunity as well. So there's a lot here that investors should be mindful of. And Alex, appreciate the transparency about some of your interactions and your process on the BlackRock side. So thank you for that. Uh, Maybe now we can pivot over to our third and final focus topic for the podcast for this month. As I mentioned, a proxy season coming to an end. So maybe we can hit on some key highlights. Amantia, can you share with us some key highlights? highlights from the 2021 proxy voting season, especially related, though, to ESG? And can you share any implications for investors? Yeah, of course, Dan. So um, we talked about the beginning of the proxy season and sort of what we were expecting to see in relation to ESG and, and environmental and social proposals in particular. And, uh, you know, what, what we chatted about was our expectations that we would see more focus on climate change this year really this dovetails the conversations we've had so far, um, but with social issues still kind of staying on the agenda, not falling behind with the focus in particular on additional um, uh, focus on, on disclosure related to, uh, to diversity and equality in companies. So now that we've come to the other side of it, uh, we've seen a lot of that actually manifest. And interestingly, one of the observations that, that we noted was that um, while the investor interest in sustainable investing is increasing overall, and, and so has the, the, the number of SI strategies or SI self-labeled strategies has also uh, been increasing and getting more traction in recent years, what we've seen when it comes to environmental and social proposals um, is that the overall number that is being proposed at annual meetings has stayed relatively stable. And what this uh, indicates to us is that um, investors that are more interested in, in sustainability issues are still preferring um, engagement with companies, kind of a longer term, slower engagement with companies as a way to move them uh, on some of these uh, environmental or social or governance issues that they care about. Um, however, another interesting thing that we've observed is that um, of the nearly 100 um, ESG type shareholder proposals that have reached majority in the past decade, um, over half of these 
um, was actually kind of approved and voted for in the last two years, so in the 2020 and 2021 uh, proxy voting seasons. And this is based on data from, um, as you saw, proxy preview uh, report. Uh, there are a nonprofit organizations that track these issues very closely. So this has been interesting to observe, and really the implication here is that um, there's, there's really more interest from asset managers who are voting on behalf of their clients uh, and who are kind of supporting uh, a lot of these shareholder proposals that come uh, on, on environmental and social topics. What this also means is that, you know, companies basically should expect uh, that, uh, that there will be either more engagement or, or kind of more support for these types of demands. And we've seen some pretty big headline-grabbing type of uh, votes uh, over the course of the summer, in particular related to oil and gas majors. Um, you know, two that I would highlight were uh, the kind of the Chevron uh, shareholders voting in favor of a proposal for the firm to to report on and start reducing scope three emissions, um, as well as the confirmation of the three activist investor nominees to the Exxon board of directors. So these are just you know two examples of how we've seen some of these proposals uh, just kind of take shape this season. Um, so I'd say. Overall, investor takeaways is that we're seeing this space um, move and we're seeing just more evidence that asset managers are, are willing to vote in this way. But our broad uh, view that um, long-term engagement is also an effective tool for investors to be able to share and kind of express their views around sustainability and change, that, that view remains. Um, the one word of warning there <laughs> is that uh, not all engagement is is the same, um, and that investors should continue to exercise diligence um, and to and to make sure that they're understanding uh, whether engagement is intentional, if it's part of the investment strategy, and if it's transparent and there's kind of reporting and metrics behind it. But all in all, um, it's been interesting to kind of observe this space, and, and we'll look forward to, I guess, next year and what happens when it comes to proxy voting and ESG. Right. Well, Amantia, thank you for sharing with us some of those highlights. It is exciting, generally speaking, to hear about how there are uh, shifts in thinking at the corporate level and clearly a lot of momentum here uh, that will bleed into 2022 that we can uh, look forward to following up on. So, Alex, what ESG issues are investors such as BlackRock looking at as it relates to ESG issues that are important or material to investors? Yeah. Great question. You know, in, in January of this year, we published our updated stewardship principles and voting guidelines that marked a real shift in our approach to shareholder proposals and reinforced our expectations of boards and their oversight and supportive management. We also enhanced engagement with companies in a few key ESG areas. The first is plans for how they will align their business to net zero by 2050. The second, um, a focus on board and workforce diversity consistent with local market best practices. And the third is, you know, understanding key stakeholders and their interests. Regarding climate, we explicitly ask that companies disclose a business plan aligned with the goal of limiting global warming to below two degrees um, consistent with net zero goals. In 2019 through 2020, we focused on 440 carbon-intensive companies, which represented 60% of scope one and two emissions to the BlackRock portfolio, where we voted against 55 directors and put 191 on watch, which means they risk votes against their directors in 2021 unless they show real progress on climate-related risk. 
And from mid-2020 to mid-2021, we expanded that focus universe to more than 1,000 companies, which represents 90% of the scope one and two emissions of BlackRock's portfolio. We also initiated engagement with 110 companies in the emerging markets or in sectors like financial services that aren't directly carbon intensive, but have significant climate risk inherent in their business model. You know, in line with our conviction that climate risk is investment risk, we held over 2,300 engagements on climate, voted against 255 directors and 319 companies for climate risk-related concerns, and supported 64% of environmental shareholder proposals voted. For companies in our climate universe, we've more rigorously assessed their climate action plans and risk disclosures, voting against management when we believe accelerated progress is needed to best serve the long-term economic interests of our clients. Uh, We will continue to engage with these companies to encourage them for further action and enhanced disclosure that enable us to assess corporate preparedness and financial resilience we believe is necessary to navigate the upcoming energy transition. Regarding social issues like diversity, equity, and inclusion, we really raised our expectation on the context of regional norms on board and workforce, ethnic, and gender diversity. In our view, diverse personnel and professional experience support the diversity mindset that really contributes to board effectiveness. And this view really aligns with our conviction that the tone from the top matters as companies aim to develop workforces that more closely resemble the customers and communities that they serve. You know, we also believe that an inclusive and diverse and engaged workforce contributes to business continuity, innovation, and long-term value creation. In the U.S. specifically, we're asking companies to disclose the, work, disclose the diversity of their workforce, including demographics on race and gender and ethnicity through disclosure of an EEO1 data, as well as the actions they're taking to advance DE&I and support an engaged workforce. The demonstrations against racial inequity that took place in the U.S. following the death of George Floyd last year really underscored the shift in awareness that the role that companies should play in advancing a more equal and inclusive society and the increased expectations and scrutiny that their shareholders place on them. In the U.S., um, companies in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world announce commitments to make additional efforts to advance social and racial equity in areas that were in their control, mostly within their workforces and their surrounding communities. And these plans included hiring more women and more people of color and promoting them into leadership roles, as well as efforts to increase support for minority-owned businesses. To name one example, the Business Roundtable, which is a network representing CEOs at U.S. companies employing more than 15 million people, established a special committee to identify meaningful steps that member companies can take to advance racial equity and justice, focus on employment, finance, education, health, housing, and the justice system. BlackRock really believes that an inclusive and diverse and engaged workforce contributes to business continuity and long-term value creation for our clients. Very productive conversation today. Amantia, Alex, thank you for covering all of the ground that you did with us. It was great catching up. A lot of topics here that we can continue to keep an eye on, track progression, and that lends itself to future follow-up conversations. Though, Amantia, Alex, uh, thank you for joining us for SI Perspectives here on UBS On Air. Appreciate it. Thanks for- Thanks for having me. 
So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. Uh, These resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including, of course, the publication which we have been citing during our conversation today, the latest Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly or if you do have any follow-up questions. Sustainable Investing Perspectives is part of the UBS Conversations podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 